some things don't change, so you may not be surprised to hear that one of the readings I have is from some of the work of Wendell Berry, one of my favorite writers. This is from one of his novels. If you've never had a chance to read his novels, I highly recommend them. This is one of the newer ones. The title is Hannah Coulter. And in this small excerpt that I want to read, Hannah Coulter's husband, Nathan, has just had a diagnosis of cancer far progressed. And Nathan was sitting over there actually reading the paper. Well, I knew he was holding it up and looking at it. For all I know, he may have been reading it. But I knew, too, that he was thinking of me. My steadfast comfort for 50 years and more had been to know that I was on his mind. That, and that was where I wanted to be. He was thinking of me, I was sure of that, but he had got ahead of me too. He had dealt with what the doctor had told us even before he had gone to the doctor. And now, in a way too late, I was having to deal with it. Looking back, I can see there was something ridiculous about it. There we were at a great crisis in our lives, and it had to be, it could only be, dealt with as an ordinary thing. Nathan had seen that. For my sake as much as his own, he was insisting on it, but I was too upset to see it then. My tears were falling into the bowl of eggs that I was beating hard, and then my nose dripped into it as well. I flung the whole frothy mess into the sink. I said, well, what are you planning to do? Just die or what? I couldn't turn around. I heard him fold the paper. After a minute, he said, Dear Hannah, I'm going to live right on. Dying is none of my business. Dying will have to take care of itself. He came to me then, an old man, weakened and ill, with my Nathan looking out of his eyes. He held me a long time as if under a passing storm, and then the quiet came. I fixed some supper, and we ate. He lived right on. And this second reading is a, a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye. It's popular these days. I heard it first two years ago. You may have heard it too, but I really love it. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4 was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shudawa, shubiduk habiti, stani stani shwey, min fadlik, shobit sewey. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who is picking you up? 
Let's call him and tell him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother until we got on the plane and would ride next to her, southwest, you know. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. And then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they shared 10 friends. And then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up to about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts, and she was offering them to all of the women in the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar. And smiling, there are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic. And the two little girls for our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar, too. And then I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing, with green furry leaves, such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around at that gate of late and weary ones and I thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion had stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. No notes, I didn't bring any, oh well. <laughs> where, where to begin? It's a world that we live in. It's a complicated and chaotic world and there is so much happening. How to be in this life at ease and able to continue to live well because if we don't live well, we are, we are dying. We're dying anyway. But we're dying not well. So how do we live well in this world at this time? Let's see. How do we begin the list of what's happening? Well, politics are just ridiculous in this country. That's one thing. But I come back into Kalamazoo and I have hope. I have great hope because this community process, these connections in this community are really incredibly amazing. And I will say that I have missed these layers upon layer of connection in Kalamazoo where people work together and get things done. Do not not notice this. 
stay in it. It doesn't happen everywhere. I've moved to the smaller community of Corvallis, Oregon. It's on the West Coast. It's in Oregon, a place where people are... Um, Well, you know, it's progressive. It's been progressive for a long time, for many years. And uh, people are proud of their progressivism. Very proud. (laughs) And I remembered, oh, these lessons I learned. When I first moved here to Kalamazoo, I found myself standing in what felt like a very strange place. Where was the gay and lesbian community, I wanted to know. It wasn't visible at first. Um, You know, how did I get here? What was I doing in Detroit, for heaven's sake? And then I quickly began to see the community of people that I could resonate with was here. So now I've moved back to that progressive place I came from, and, oh, it looks different. Completely familiar and totally different. Totally different. And now I notice there's a a thing. I noticed it in San Francisco some years ago where in a Unitarian church in San Francisco, the people talked to me over and over and every one of them basically said, San Francisco is the center of the universe. If it's not happening here, it's not happening. And I was from Kalamazoo at the time. I thought, oh, really? Okay. There's something about that progressive Western thing that's a little, sometimes I feel, too precious. And the anxiety on the West Coast is high. The anxiety is high because this was the place that in the 1960s, it's where the flower children movement started. It's where people decided as young people they would change the world and they would address war and poverty and all the things that their parents hadn't taken care of and that we would change the world. And now they're in their 60s and 70s and not only has the world not changed in some ways but in some ways it's even harder. Poverty is still with us. Civil rights, well we didn't, every, we didn't actually learn to deal with our differences We didn't learn to navigate difference. We just sort of kept those segregations going, but we didn't talk about it so much. And now it erupts. It erupts in fire and killing in our own towns and cities. It's still so real. We didn't quite change that, but maybe now we have a chance. And there's the threat of financial collapse again, as always. And oh, oh, don't forget climate change. It's bigger than everything. And in the West, people are very, very aware of climate change and have a sense that we ourselves must save the world. We must save the world. As if we can. But some amazing things are happening within the last two years. 14 different new fossil fuel projects have been stopped by protesters. Well, that's pretty good if that's the aim to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and have other things be the things that will save us. But now, to add to the list, and you all can feel very fine about that. this now, now, having moved to the Pacific Northwest, we are now waiting or denying the fact of the coming big earthquake in the Cascadia subduction zone, part of the plate tectonics of the Pacific Ocean, which has only been known about for 40 years, but um, the scientists who are working on it say, when this happens, 
What they said was basically from Northern California through to Vancouver Island, everything west of the I-5 corridor, and I live 10 miles west of I-5, everything west of the I-5 corridor will be toast. Huge, the shifting of the earth. And so I think, oh, what a stupid idea that was. I moved there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So, so what do you do with that? So it makes all of the other hard things in our life feel small, knowing that entire systems of life, the ocean, will come in and cover 35 miles in and it will go back out and nothing will be left. <laughs> it makes all the other things that we're worried about feel pretty small. So here's, here's the thing, how to live not in denial and not in despair. How to go on living and living well. That's what we are called to do every day. Not only to go on living, but to live as well as we can. And oh my God, is that a hard thing to do? Because Everything that comes our way, we feel so often personally affronted by it. This, me, this, and then this, oh, and this too. So let me just say that this congregation has been through a transition. We've all been through a transition. It has not been easy. It has not been easy. I thought for a while as I was moving to Oregon for very important reasons in my life that weren't about not loving being here. They were bigger reasons, my life. For a, a few months, I believed, I, tr I realized now I truly believed I could be here and there at the same time and that that would solve everything, <laughs> which is how we deal with hard things <laughs> in ways that are not very realistic. And my hopes for beautiful, continued movement up and up and up and up by this congregation, well, I know that you had a hard time too. Transitions are just not easy. And no one deserves to have hard times. No one deserves it. No one deserves any of it. But life is that way. And so we try to keep doing the next best thing. I've gotten to be friends with a, a woman who lives in Maine where some of the members of the Bujumbura Burundi partner church that's a partner church here with People's Church had come as refugees and um, several of them had come in you know, terrible health, dying of tuberculosis and HIV and things like that. And so we dove in across the country connecting with each other. What can we do? What can we do? And none of us knew and so we began to say, okay, what's, what's the next step we can take that's a good step? What, what's the next best thing we can do? And I think that that's actually the mantra for how to live well. Not, oh my gosh, let me see if I can understand this entire thing that's happening to me because we'll never be able to understand all of it because it's so complicated what's happening. Because whatever is happening, 
whether it's a diagnosis of cancer or whether it's a huge earthquake that we're waiting for that will wipe out everything that we know, or whether it's climate change, which is slowly changing us, we can't deal with the whole of it because, first of all, we have to deal with ourselves in it. And ourselves are so complicated, so complicated. We don't even know half of what's in ourselves. We don't even know an eighth. Because we're, we're so willing to live in this thin layer of life as we think it, as we wish it, as we hope it will be. So first we would have to really own up to how we really feel. That would take years, you know, and lots of good therapists. And, you know, there are only a relatively few really good therapists. Um, that's my own thing. I really want, someday I want a really good therapist who can really help me. I seem to be so unhelpable sometimes. But, so that's one thing we would have to do. Oh, and then we would have to turn to each other on a regular basis with the intent not just of pouring out our own things, which we need, we need to be heard, but of hearing other people's as well. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. You know that. And then if we turned to each other more regularly, then we would have to start to work together with our differences to figure out what's the next best thing to do. This is a career. And many of us are already retired and say, I was looking for leisure and sunshine. I have to do this too? Or if we're younger, we're like, I don't have time for this myself, others, the world. I have a career. I need, to, I need to work. I need to pay my mortgage. All this other stuff. Who has time for that? And that's the religious life that's calling us. That's the religious life that's calling us, that we're living in. You know, Halloween was, it arose out of the practices of human beings recognizing, actually knowing that they lived in a world bigger than the surface. They lived in the whole world, in life itself, the source of everything, life, death. We live in that, but we're not aware of it very often. So Halloween was one of those kinds of observances where the story was that the worlds became closer the real world, the deep world, the world of life and death, the spirits, the power that could do something to your life. And when those worlds came closer, what did we do? Well, we better dress up and put out pumpkins and scare those spirits away because we want to protect ourselves from the deep life which includes death. So that was what Halloween was about. And then, this is just tangential, but it morphed into dressing up in costumes, which actually is not a bad way to begin to understand all of the other parts of ourselves. You know, the masking and the trying out different identities. We still live in that whole world, in life itself, the world of life and death. And how to live well, how to keep living these religious lives means that we have to keep at the center of our consciousness and of our activity this understanding that we are in life itself, that it is bigger than we are, that we don't even ask the question about whether we deserve what life gives us or not, because this is just life. 
And to waste our time wondering if it could have or should have happened differently is to waste our time. To take life, to live in that life, the world of life and death, means to recognize the signs of both denial and despair. Because if we don't recognize them, it's very hard to move into the middle way of, I don't want to say just acceptance, I don't want that to sound too easy, because it's not easy. You don't just say, oh, I'm not going to deny it, and I'm not in despair, and I'm just going to walk the middle way. You don't do that. The middle way is, you know, up the mountain, the steepest mountain with 50 pounds on your back. That's the middle way. It's a, it's a hard road. So to help ourselves find ourselves in the middle way and then to literally turn to each other even more than we do and in more real ways than we do. This is still the religious call for our lives. Cards and casseroles and visiting are absolutely important. They are the doors which open us to the possibility of really sharing together. They are necessary doors. But once we step through those doors, we have to ask the questions and begin to hear and say the real answers. And like joys and concerns, to get to the real stuff will take a while. We will tell like Eric did. So when someone has helped you, what did it feel like? Well, first he had to tell the 14 details of how he got hurt, which is what we do. So we have to be able to listen to that. We have to be able to hear ourselves do it and then go beyond that. It's not just the 14 or the 20 or the 300 ways in which we've been hurt. We've all been hurt. We've all been hurt. And we have all felt and discovered resilience, strength, Joy, moving forward, everyone who's in this room has had some experience of that. That's the work that we dig into a little bit more, the turning to each other. Finally, the resting back into, taking a breath, resting into the big world, life itself, the world of life and death. When people ask the Dalai Lama, I read a, an article recently, you know, things are changing in his life. He's doing some very interesting things at age 80, I think. So what are you planning to do this year? His answer is, I'm preparing to die, as always. As always. And it doesn't mean that he has a disease or that he knows what he's doing, but it is, it is where he is centered, knowing that This is the world of life and death. And focusing on each day being the life that is worth living. So that, I think, is the biggest challenge for us. What in your life, how are you living that is worth dying for? Or let's say, at least would be okay to die in, with. Not just, 
preparing to die and putting all of my things in order as if I'll ever get that under control. Almost, you know, nobody really does. But to be content, to be content in the face of, oh, the big earthquake that's coming. Walter and I laid here in Kalamazoo and thought, okay, maybe we better move back. We'll save ourselves from the great earthquake. (laughs) Or, you know, we may die in the big earthquake. And if we don't die in a big earthquake, we're going to die of something. What is important is that we can say that we are living, we are living the things we want the world to be, still, still, not after we finally get through transition and all these things that we don't think we deserve and, oh, wouldn't those people just grow up and, oh, whatever. (laughs) Some of my own thoughts. And then I'll get around to being my better self, hopefully. If it was today, if it was today, if it was tomorrow, am I doing what I can? Am I doing what I can really mostly to help people, to just be helpful? If you want somebody to do things the way you think they should be done, can you help them do that? Not, come on, you should do this, and this is how it should be, and what's wrong with those people? What's wrong with those people? Can we help each other get there? I I want to be helped. I don't want people to wag their fingers at me. In this world of life and death, it's all right there. Any one of these things could blow the whole thing up and may and may not. And I don't want to live in either denial of the way life is because I will miss the incredible depths and beauty of what it means to be alive. And I do not want to live in despair because I might as well be dead while I'm alive if despair is my greatest, my greatest work. I want to live to the call of life, which is to live, to live well, to live in ways that are worth my death that are worth dying for. Once again, I invite us to turn to each other and help each other. The shared world. May it be so.